Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show coming off of 4th of July and IndyCar at Mid-Ohio. Lewis Foster winning his first Indy NXT by Firestone race. Alex Pillow, oh, not winning his first race of the year, winning his, we're starting to lose track. I mean, come on, we've had nine races this guy's won four of them, could easily have won five of them. Running away with the championship, I can't see anybody catching our guy unless all kinds of cartoon anvils start falling on that number 10 Chip Ganassi Racing Honda. So, bunch of great questions from you coming in to this episode. Let me say a big thank you to y'all for sending them in. Also, to our pal Jerry Suddeth, who puts them together for us, chooses the ones that we use, places them in the order he thinks will create the best show, and just takes great care of me and us. And then, obviously, to our dear friends and supporters, those being Cooper Tires. Amazing, amazing folks, led by Chris Pantani who make the USF Championships presented by Cooper Tires possible. That three-tier system, more great winners from last weekend. Really, really happy to see. Didn't have any folks running all the way through and winning every single race at those. uh, We had the second and third tier, USF 2000 and US Pro 2000, USF Pro 2000. But lots of great winning there. Pole positions aplenty, so just happy to see that more fun, more quality being had there. Also, huge, huge new involvement in the USF Pro Championships, that being Discount Tire. They have joined on here in the last couple of months, so we say thank you to them. Also, our original partner, torontomotorsports.com, motor race and memorabilia available at torontomotorsports.com. They will be servicing one of their home events back-to-back so coming this weekend good old mo sport aka canadian tire motorsports park imsa weathertech sports car championship and then the following weekend good old honda indy toronto so we have greater toronto represented two weeks in a row with our friends at torontomotorsports.com there please go check them out seriously a lot of great fun stuff you might want to buy and wear or give to friends or put on a shelf and then oldest partner oldest friend that being the justice family justice brothers automotive chemicals and lubricants so thanks again to all of our partners that make the show possible before we jump into your questions of which there are about 1600 words worth uh (laughs) really enjoyed having some downtime my first days not working since i believe the beginning of april so yeah, uh, that's not a complaint. Just, boy, kicked my butt with all the work, all the travel. So it was really nice having about a weekish, week and a half or so off. It's a little bit of work in between, but truly, truly got some time to just wind down, be a bum. My wife's birthday, Shabrell, she had her birthday, which we were able to celebrate. We had intended to go on vacation here locally. Unfortunately, uh, had to cancel that. Ended up being a staycation. Um, one of the, the fun things about 
going through the medical challenges we've been going through and she's been fighting through them and doing great great things and succeeding there is sometimes you get random random bills random invoices and sometimes they make you go oh sweet baby jesus so yeah uh we're still figuring that part out going to uh but yeah we realized that oh there's no way we could go (laughs) because uh we are now uh, having oh boy pretty uh pretty fun stuff to try and take care of and uh and pay off so it's just part of the deal uh not a complaint just part of life so ended up staying home and lots of great time with her our cats rocky and rosie and even completed a little project last weekend i've been wanting to do for a while and we cleaned up and made a lot of space in our apartment right across from the uh, hospital we've been frequenting for quite some time uh and yeah just a little more breathing space so pretty happy with that final thing to mention just because uh my wife is one of the funniest people that i know um she is an avid consumer of youtube content among the things while browsing around trying to get out of uh, i guess her viewing of youtube on our main television in the living room um happened to scroll down and i guess she had caught some of a uh, bus bros episode sometime recently and mentioned that i'm like oh cool i see you you know had the latest episode up to watch and she could not for the life of her remember the name of the show and so uh, as i do sometimes instead of helping because i know hilarity is about to ensue i just wait and let her kind of run through the things that go through her mind until she gets to the name of what she's trying to think of and so uh while doing that uh she told me that uh the sh- she thought the it might have been the uh <laughs> hambone and roy show <laughs> i didn't think to ask whether joseph was hambone uh or scott was hambone or scott was roy or joseph was roy but yeah while trying to think of uh the bus bros she came up with the hambone and roy show and then maybe because of Joseph's uh, veins of milk video, I don't know. The next stab at it was the milk bros. Uh, but yeah, eventually she got to the bus bros. But I uh, I had to enter this one into my notes app on my iPhone, the Hambone and Roy show. So they will probably have no clue what I'm referring to but I'm going to call the bus bros, the Hambone and Roy show as many times as possible going forward. All right. Well, it's been a little while since I've given you one of these and it's the dumbest thing you'll ever hear. And that's just, let's go. Let's do a little DJ party horn, uh, at rich underscore in underscore MN, which I assume is Minnesota, but if not, um, I'm wrong. Uh, asks concerned over IndyCars going airborne anything that can be done um and this is in reference to simon pagino's car catching air and his big crash and barrel roll at mid ohio um specific to this rich absolutely not 
Simon's car did exactly what it should have done in this incident. Uh, this is just physics and laws of gravity and things that were earthbound being flung off of earth while at 130 or whatever miles per hour. Like, uh, I can think of nothing that would prevent what happened from happening unless there was truly some sort of tether holding the cars to the ground. If you think of what big aircraft carriers seeing those jets being launched off of those aircraft carriers with a high speed cable that gets fired and basically drags the jets forward and throws them off of the surface obviously disconnects there's a, a disconnect there but unless we're talking about some sort of sliding track or two around a motor racing circuit where the cars are held with some sort of cable so they could not lift up off of the track there's nothing that can be done because an object going a hundred plus miles an hour uh, slewed sideways and went firing off the edge of a cliff and so had the track in that area at mid-ohio been completely flat uh, simon in theory could have just slid along that but since we had a vehicle flying out of control or i should say rolling out of control its tires rolling and still contacting the ground uh, and then flying off the circuit where there was a bit of a, a trench and drop off into the uh, pit there. Um, car did exactly what it should have done. Uh, shed all the things that were meant to be shed and broken, uh, reduced energy, diffuse that energy. And other than a concussion slash concussion like symptoms, because I don't think we've ever had formal confirmation that Simon had a concussion. Everything that we saw happened just the way it should have. And uh, I would hope that if another brake failure, failure, as Simon experienced, uh, were to take place in that section, that basically the same kind of thing would take place. Not because it's crazy or cool or anything like that, but this is how a driver like Simon and any other driver would be able to get out of the car under their own power and walk under their own power to an emergency vehicle. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, limits to what we can prevent from happening uh, when something like this takes place. Different topic than if it were purely an aerodynamic thing right? That is an area where IndyCar has put in extensive work along with their partners at Delara to come up with ways to keep the cars on the ground, or if there's any kind of lifting to cease that lifting almost immediately in a broad slide or going backwards or otherwise, never going to be perfect, never going to solve every single uh, airborne incident from ever happening. But we look at the indianapolis motor speedway in particular uh the work that indycar's tino belly and a number of other very good folks have come up with in recent years has indeed all but stopped these airborne aerodynamically driven launches 
in a crash. But when you separate a car from the ground beneath it and then reintroduce it to that ground, whether it's solid or dirt or gravel or whatever, um, while it is going at a crazy high rate of speed, I mean, any and everything's going to dig in and spin. So uh, nothing I can think of here. A lot of you are asking about blue flags, move over flags. Lance Snyder asking about why Benjamin Peterson was fighting so hard. Um, Daniel Summers Gill wondering if they just need to use that move over flag more often. I have another question here. Ed Joris asking if they should disable push to pass for lapped cars. I can understand why Benjamin Peterson fought hard to not go a lap down. What I can understand is why he fought so hard for so long. Keep in mind, this was overstating the obvious, but this was the leader behind him who on a, what is it? 2.2, 2.3 mile track had completed 2.18 miles more, right? Distance wise. Holy crap. This guy had traveled almost two more miles than Benjamin Peterson in the same race and got to his you know, proverbial rear bumper. And Benjamin fought like there was a million-dollar prize to be had if he could hold him off. And Palo, to my immense, uh, I guess, respect, was faced with another challenge. Maybe that's something that wasn't spoken of enough. He had the potential to lose his head, to drive too hard to try and get by him, and risk burning off his front tires from understeer in the wash coming off of Peterson's car, and then the inevitable oversteer from when those front tires that are understeering and you're turning more and more to get them to grab. When they do grab, then you get that oversteer, and so you're just sawing the front and rear tires off of the car. He had the potential to fall into that trap, all just red mist and frustration, did not let it happen. Granted, his lead came way the heck down, but we never saw desperation. And so, yet again, this is why the guy's already a one-time champion and is looking like he's on the way to number two. What he did was kept fighting, kept up the pressure, and obviously he was using a bit of push to pass, trying to help himself. Didn't necessarily get him what he wanted, uh, on multiple occasions, but he kept pushing, kept the pressure up, and I think rightfully knew that Peterson would eventually make a mistake. He did, got past him, and ran away. So that's Alex Pillow. And if that's where the story ended, we're not having this conversation. It's it's a minor footnote. Man, why did Peterson put up such a... It's the fact that then, after being a lap down, pardon my French, just really dickish driving and you go okay so now you're fighting p2 like he was p1 and you're fighting p3 and seemingly anybody you've decided this is the race where you're going to die on that hill <laughs> right you like thank goodness there wasn't a pace car because if oriel servia was out there trying to get by him to lead the field 
I feel like Peterson would have run him off the road, uh, blocked him, used push to pass under caution to stay in front of the pace car. Like it was that kind of, this makes no sense. So I already mentioned some of this on Monday's edition of the racing family show, which I still need to, uh, record off of Twitter and post as a podcast, but just to finish here, um, I really do hope Benjamin has reached out to what felt like half the field after the race saying, uh, you are on our lump of coal list. You are getting zero friendship bracelets from us in the future. And we won't say it in so many words to really make IndyCar take down notes to, uh, monitor us. But if we get the opportunity to screw you, like you screwed me at a future race, Oh, we're taking it. Um, the kid needs to pick up the phone, send a text, send a group email to, I would just say the entire field and say, Hey, if, if my driving behavior on Sunday impeded your race, caused you problems, or was just over the top. Um, I ate some gas station sushi. I was hallucinating. I don't know what I apologize. Uh, I'm never going to just lay down and just let you go by easily because you'll never respect me if I do that. But I also know that I probably lost. If you had any, whatever measure of respect for me from the not eight races we'd done previously, I apologize. Cause I probably just destroyed that respect by my unfathomable and completely unreasonable level of fighting against you while you were not a lap down and had opportunities and probably finished in a very good position and please be my friend and i will hopefully give you friendship bracelets and you'll give them back to me uh ones that you make for me i hope that he does that because if he doesn't and he just stonewalls things and is like well deal with it he'll get dealt with and he's already had some pretty good crashes this year destroyed at least one car that i know of um those who felt rightfully aggrieved by his behavior at mid Ohio can absolutely have the Foyt team ordering more cars, ordering more wings, ordering more suspensions, ordering lots of stuff all because he took away any compassion they might've had for him. And that's ultimately what veterans do or don't have for rookies. Hey, you're a kid. You might be a champion coming out of Indy Lights or whatever else, uh, but you're going to show your ass a few times. You're going to make some really bad decisions, and I can either show you really wicked retribution or can just go, okay, all right, uh, you're using up that line of rookie credit, but give you the benefit of the doubt. Please do learn from this. Um, this is not on Larry Foyt, AJ Foyt, Craig Brooks, the team manager, or Michael Cannon, or anyone else at AJ Foyt Racing to go and make peace throughout the paddock. This is strictly on Benjamin, and I love the kid. He's a he's a sweet, sweet kid. He just lost his mind on Sunday, and I hope he's got great parents too, like really, really good people. I would imagine that if he didn't arrive at the conclusion on his own already, his parents will have said, son, charge your phone. 
because you got some calls to make and please invite the aggrieved drivers to not introduce you to the walls at toronto and iowa and nashville and everywhere else let's see why don't we go to steve bonnick mp hope you and the family are doing well and enjoying some downtime well we're back we're enjoying some uptime even though i'm recording this way later than expected steve 6 26 p.m on a wednesday evening but been a busy day but a good day uh so getting to it right now so yeah regarding simon's crash the root cause was a quote manufacturer failure as opposed to the team screwing up question mark say also simon said he turned to dissipate energy versus going head on is that something drivers practice well let's start with the last part first uh the more experienced ones surely do because they have very likely had similar things happen before not necessarily brake failure at the end of the longest fastest stretch of road on a road course but just something where you go oh this hasn't happened in a split second before i might reach and hit the wall but this has happened quote early enough to where i have enough track in front of me to participate in the slowing down of the car and let me go ahead and do that so whether it's karting or usf championships presented by cooper tires indian xt presented by firestone or anything else you don't get a ton of these things happening right things big failures like this are not commonplace so i don't know if drivers coming into indycar as rookies or otherwise are going to have a lot of experience realizing that they can indeed help themselves when a big crash like this is about to happen but i'd have to believe they've experienced that once or twice um hopefully not many more but you take someone like simon who's been in indycar since what 2007 it's a long time uh, also you think of all the time he's had in sports cars and yeah for sure he has had brake failure suspension failure wing failure all tire failure wheel failure and i'm sure he's had brake failure at some point in time so in this scenario uh this was really smart on his part because had he flown nose first and dug in that way uh i think he goes farther than he did by going in sideways um yeah so not something they quote practice but keep in mind that a wily veteran like simon would realize that just pulling back his hands and crossing them and you know holding his shoulder harnesses and pulling his legs back the minute he noticed things are about to go bad and then just letting things happen purely on their own a veteran like simon realizes oh no no, no. i might only have one second or who knows half a second but i can help myself here and let me go ahead and do that uh did see from the team and also spoke with mike shank today for a story about the fact that uh, the car simon's crashed car is not a total write-off the tub itself is repairable and they will be and getting it back out here not for toronto but maybe for iowa 
Um, they made repeated efforts, as did Mike, in our call to mention manufacturer failure. And you do that when you are frustrated with whichever manufacturer, or you do that to make it very clear I don't know just fans, but more to all of your partners, sponsors, everybody who is investing money, especially during a down year like they've been having, very frustrating, well below expectations. There's a kind, kinds of phrasing, Steve, that you see used and used repeatedly and uh, unflinchingly when you need to let it be known that this wasn't on us. And so, yes, this was absolutely done to delineate between we made a mistake while bleeding the brakes or doing something related to the brakes and something that was within not our control, not our manufacturer, but something that someone else made. This is within their realm and this broke. So last thing I'll mention here, there's levels to this, right? I know it's kind of obvious. There's levels to everything, but brake manufacturer, PFC, very important. Uh, I've had a relationship with them for a super long time, use their products on a number of the cars that I raced, ran, you name it, even dating back to like the mid 80s. Um, they're not compared to a Firestone, Chevrolet, Honda, Dallara, uh, a big, big name that could push back pretty heavily and, or lead to some serious consequences if the wrong words were chosen. So I'm not saying, and I do mean, it, I'm not saying that Meyer Shank racing chose to, uh, go hard against PFC in their choice of wording on this. I am though telling you that if this was a failure from one of the big manufacturers who pour millions into the series and, or invest millions in the development of what they do, uh, and are just tied married to the series in so many different ways with big dollars and big marketing initiatives at stake. This is something where any team would think twice, three times about how they phrase such things and how hard or honest they were about what happened. So a little bit in there to, uh, to grasp in how things were presented. I think, um, our friend Tracy at apex ATX, she says, after seeing Simon's wreck and wondering how the drivers are usually able to be up and walking the next day. Yes. What does the recuperation process look like for these massive accidents? They're all different, Tracy. In this case, I mean, I texted Simon, I'm, I'm sure as a thousand other people did after the crash, just say, hey, you know, glad you're okay, thinking about you, sending love for my wife and I, just truly normal thing. It took him, I think, three days to respond, which normally Simon responds right away. You know that that's not going to happen because, again, a trillion other people have sent such texts. But 
just spoke Tracy to uh, the need for him to focus on himself and also the sheer volume of responses to be done. I share that for a reason, and that's because was he able to be up and around and walking right after the crash and the next day? You bet. Did I follow up and say, hey, how are you feeling? Are you banged like you banged up? I'll just I'll leave that alone because none of that really matters right now. We can safely assume that any kind of crash like that's going to leave you with, you know, a couple bumps and bruises, any of the, the hard bony parts that might come in contact with something, whether it's an elbow, whether it's an ankle, who knows? You know, I'm sure he's ginger in a couple areas. The concern here, though, is more about the rattling around of that stuff between his ears. And while we have questioned for many years how much stuff there is up there to get rattled around, kidding. Um, think about Joseph Newgarden last year, uh, big crash, right? Uh, thinking about Iowa, thinking about him trying to get back at racing as soon as he can. Um, what is he doing? What are folks who, I mean, the, the old colloquialism is have their bell rung. I've never really liked that, but uh, just speaks to the, ooh, boy, uh, you had something hard and uncomfortable happen with the, the whipping and whiplash and whatnot, the violence going on, you know, above your shoulders in that uh, noggin of yours. Uh, you hear about folks spending time in the dark, closing their eyes, trying to have things be as peaceful as possible visually, right? Probably not playing video games with, you know, big blasting sounds, if that's what they happen to like in terms of gaming, but lots of flashing and movement and eyes bouncing all over the place. Like, those tend to be the things when we're talking about a concussion or something close to that, where, no, 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 no. We are, if anything, trying to settle all that down and prevent that. So when you see a driver like Simon step out from the big crash and they're able to walk and they have their motor skills still in place, you go, cool. Doesn't look like we have any major soft tissue issues, bone issues and such, but where's the gray matter at? And so that sounds exactly like the place that he's at based on team owner Mike Shank mentioning today uh, that, you know, still got a headache. Um, obviously, he didn't pass the impact test, that being a cognitive test uh, that gets done when there are concerns of a concussion. So he'll be getting tested, going back through, being evaluated, I think Mike said next Monday. So we'll find out if he's able to drive at Toronto. But unlike a, hey, you have a really nasty bone bruise or hematoma or a fracture of this, and you can be given some sort of fairly specific up oh, that's two weeks that's seven days that's whatever this is one of those things where we think maybe he'll be okay given that we have a week off this weekend and yada 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 but this part of things when it comes to brain health and brain recuperation really really hard for us to predict uh, let's see. At Racing Storky says, in Spain, a lot of the media is already talking about Alex Polo going to F1. The IndyCar is almost getting too small for him. Do you share that feeling? 
has there ever been a driver that had such dominant performances oh yes was talking with a friend or two uh the past couple days about well let's see the last time in my adult life at least where a driver dominated an IndyCar and then either got the call up to Formula One, meaning Formula One teams actively went after them and got them, or an IndyCar driver doing extremely well made their efforts to get to F1 and tried to open doors and create relationships in the absence of F1 teams chasing them down. Mike Landretti was certainly being pursued for a while by McLaren uh, before uh, he went over and raced for them in 1993. Next was Juan Pablo Montoya, right? Now, granted, he did a lot of his junior open wheel training and education here in the States, went over to Europe, won the Formula 3000 championship, was on the cusp, we think, of going to F1 ended up coming over here, just <laughs> laying waste to things uh, in IndyCar, uh, winning the Indy 500, becoming a car, IndyCar champion, uh, and then went to F1. And yeah, I mean, just imagine if he'd been teammates with Michael Schumacher. Uh, wow. Uh, can fantasize about that stuff all day long of how the world might be different and uh championship tallies might be different than what they are but monterior uh was next there was you know red bull doing an f1 driver search an american f1 driver search uh that led to scott speed getting an opportunity there but that was a bit of a special thing speed was not an indycar driver came up through the junior american open wheel ladder though and did super well he had plenty of talent, but um, really Sebastian Bourdais was next after that, right? Reeling off four consecutive champ car titles. Uh, went over and drove for the team formerly known as Toro Rosso, and that did not go well. Not because Seb lacked the talent, obviously, but uh, the car was just not designed in a way that uh, connected or complemented, connected with his needs for its handling and performance and really rarely if ever felt uh like he was able to get the maximum out of the car and that experiment ended uh sooner than it should have um, alexander rossi similar path to a scott speed of kind of formula bmw and junior american open wheel but you know lower lower rungs of junior open wheel before heading to europe and while he is and was an American who did make it to F1, uh, he got there because of what he did in Europe, not because of anything related to here. So really, Bourdais is the last uh, who we can say after just kicking the you-know-what out of everybody in Champ Car slash IndyCar, he headed to F1 based on talent, merit, you name it. Um Hello would be the next, and he is changing the narrative about his Formula One worthiness race by race. 
I think about him winning at the Indianapolis Grand Prix. It was great. Not a surprise. Uh, him earning pole for the Indy 500. Okay, that's not a surprise in terms of what we have seen him do at Indy since he was a rookie in 2020. Uh, Chip Ganassi, when I asked him why you, why did you hire Polo? Why did you pursue Alex Polo? Um, he told me it was because of his performance at the Indy 500. He thought that was pretty remarkable. So again, we're not shocked that he was on pole, but just shocked in the fact that here's a guy who hasn't done many of these and has no former experience on ovals before he came to America, and this guy has clearly figured this stuff out, could have easily won, as we've mentioned, then goes and just mollywops everybody at Detroit, continues the party, wins at Road America, and then wins again last weekend. I think somewhere around the Road America win, if F1 teams were truly paying attention in the way that they should, in particular, those who have seats to potentially offer, of which there are very few, and then the move into last weekend's win, this mid-Ohio victory, which again had Colton Herta succeeded in hitting the pit stop button, maybe the outcome of the race is a little bit different, but for those who might have been paying attention, I would suggest that this, again, Detroit, pretty amazing, but I would suggest the not just running off and winning and destroying people, but the actual, oh, this looked like someone else's race, but you rallied and took it. And hey, the same guy actually kind of looked like this is going to be his race. And this guy, you did this to at Road America. And this guy who you kind of did this to again at Mid-Ohio, this is someone who seemingly was on the cusp of Formula One, Colton Herta, still could be, but it's not just the fact that this guy's had a couple of amazing races in a row where the fight back element has really stood out. I think it's also the fact that Colton's a known name and he's doing things that could lead those who might have an interest in him to go, okay, that's a benchmark we value, right? Just stomping people at Detroit, okay. But who you're beating and how you're beating them, I think that's what has stood out. And for one other level to this as well. It's one thing in a spec-ish type series like IndyCar for one of the drivers in the top two teams to beat the heck out of folks. You would go, well, shouldn't you do that? <laughs> right? Aren't you, if not the defending champions, didn't you win the championship the year before and the year before that? And the other team, Team Penske, like, hey, they've won a bunch of championships recently too. Like, just beating up on folks while driving for one of the biggest teams, maybe not the biggest shocker. So I don't think your average F1 team would be blown away by that because they'd expect that from a Ganassi driver, Penske driver, etc. Knowing that in F1, not only not a spec series, but the majority of the cars aren't great, are at least nowhere close to the leading one or two teams. Currently Red Bull slash Ferrari. 
seeing that type of Road America fight back and Mid-Ohio fight back, I think that is something that specifically would speak to those F1 teams who might be considering Polo to go, huh, now that that's something, because realistically, that's what you'd have to do for us. And so again, whether it's a Alpha Tori or whatever they're going to end up being called here, I mean, realistically, it, I think most of us believe it's just them, but again, who knows what might happen elsewhere. But I think that manner in which Alex has gotten these last two wins probably done more for his currency in F1 than almost anything else. Not the amount of wins he has had, not pole position at the Indy 500, but the, oh, all right, you didn't look like the guy, but you rallied and still won. That has value for what we might need you to do for us. Uh, why don't we go to, oh, and to the point of IndyCar is too small for him. No, I don't think so. I mean, put him in another team's car this season. I don't believe we see all these victories. So, yeah. Um, if he were to go to Errol McLaren, I think he would have a greater challenge to do what he's doing right now. And that would not make anyone say IndyCar is too little for him. Uh, but if his home country media is suggesting such a thing, well, good on them. Um, speaking with Alex since he arrived here in 2020, he's always wanted and hoped his national media would get behind him and celebrate him and treat him like the star that he is. And I don't, he's never said that in any kind of vain way, but you know, he said like, yeah, you know, it's picking up a little more and a little more, you know, Fernando Alonso, uh, buys a cup of coffee in the morning and you know, that's going to make national headlines. Alex Polo wins an IndyCar race on the same day and it probably isn't going to get front page coverage. So back to the whole, there's levels to this stuff. Um, it sounds like Alex's Spanish media folks are starting to treat him a little bit more special. And if that helps build up interest in him and maybe gets him closer to or all the way to F1, then I think that's awesome. And if part of that effort involves painting him as being too big for IndyCar and F1's really the place where he needs to go, then I don't mind that. But, you know, let's also be fair. If Alex Pillow was driving for Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing, we wouldn't be having this conversation this year because no matter how good he is, he is not going to take those cars and take them to victory lane because that team's not quite ready to win races, at least through mid-Ohio. Uh, why do we go to Keith Lee? You say not to take away from Pelot's performance these last few races, but it seems very evident that just having a fast car driver and pit crew doesn't guarantee wins in IndyCar. So it seems like Andretti, McLaren, and RLL lack in the strategy area. And that's where Ganassi and Penske beat them almost every weekend. Does that sound about right? Uh, not, not totally, but <laughs> how's this? Alex has a fast car. 
He's a fast driver, and his pit crew, to my knowledge, has not given up anything to make his life hard or significantly harder over the last two months. And I'm not saying they did prior to the last two months. I'm just saying since he's been on this winning streak. One thing is for sure, all it takes is a wrong strategy call, not hitting the pit lane speed limiter and getting a penalty, uh, crashing into someone else on the opening lap like Alex's teammate Marcus Erickson did, which dropped him from second in the championship to fourth from one simple mistake. Um, I don't know if I'd put it down heavily to strategy. Uh, if we think to back to Road America, right? For reasons that weren't fully understood, and I don't know if they ever will be, uh, the Andretti team pitted pole sitter and dominant race leader Colton Herta one lap before everybody else for the final stop of the race. That in and of itself was not going to kill his potential to win. It did mean, though, that he would need to save four miles worth of fuel, which without a caution would have been hard. There was no caution, so it was hard. But they also made an even bigger mistake. And again, it's not through intent. It's just how it happened. They didn't get his tank full of fuel on that final stop. So whether he pitted, had them, whether they had him pit one lap sooner than they should have or not, uh even if they pitted him one lap later with everybody else like Alex Pillow and like others had the same lack of full fuel delivery taken place, we'd be not discussing the when he was pitted, but the mistake, whatever it was, whether it was human, whether it was mechanical, something failed in the fuel probe. Again, don't know. However it happened, um, we would have been talking about the lack of a full tank as the thing that conspired against their greater success. Don't know if there was anything strategery-wise at Mid-Ohio. I could point to Colton again in this instance as being a problem. He just, again, it was a mistake, right? It wasn't when they brought him in, but just, right? Uh, performance issue there. I think about Aero McLaren right? Hey, Pato made a really painful mistake in qualifying, spun off, ended up starting at the back and drove his behind off and almost entirely made up for his mistake. Strategy wise, hey, <laughs> he was on the gas it up and go and drive like an animal, which is perfect for him. And the guy rewarded the team with a stellar result in light of the odds he had to overcome. So how about Penske, for example? Their cars were not crazy fast at Mid-Ohio. Don't know why, but they just were not crazy fast. Similar at Road America, right? I mean, they were quick, but not, oh my goodness, quick. Um, RLL? Graham, they did have a mistake during the pit stop, right? Had issues with the left rear. And when I say mistake, I should actually revise that. I believe it was an equipment failure. 
I seem to recall, uh, might've been a wheel gun issue that required extra time to turn around and get another wheel gun and a bit of miscommunication then on the wheel being attached, having to lift the car back up, fix that wheel properly and then send them off. The added time there really ruined Graham's chances of taking what had been a very good day, very good weekend, right? So I'm not saying that there hasn't been some amazingly consistent and great race strategy executed by Barry Wanzer on that number 10 timing stand with Pelot. There has, without a doubt. But I would say if you unwind some of the things recently, at least, Keith, where you go, oh, boy, <laughs> minus that, that other team could have won or would have been in stronger contention to hold off a pillow or never give them a chance to get in front of them. I think the thing that jumps out is when you have one team being consistently great at strategy and maybe a rival team, front-running team as well. That's also kicking butt on race strategy. One of those two makes a driver error, pit stop error, something outside the scope of strategy. Uh, boy, things margins being as tight as they are, they're always going to go to the one that has flawless races or the closest thing to flawless. And that indeed has been Alex Pelot. Uh, not every race this year, for sure. Otherwise, he'd be leading the championship by a trillion points. Um, but this is something going on here that is really special. And the reason, to close on this, why <laughs> nobody's getting Alex Pillow really chirping too much about, I'm super confident, I'm going to kick everybody's butt, and championship is mine. And I mean, that's not his personality, but... Uh, the reason folks have who've asked questions, whether it's on TV or other media, getting Alex's quotes and whatnot, the reason folks have struggled to get him to say anything boastful or otherwise about how well things have been going is because he's the first to realize that things have been going so well, right? His worst finish of the year is eighth. And that was to start the year. Every finish since then has been fifth place or better. I mean, it's just stupid, <laughs> right? Things have been going so well that you look at his teammate Scott Dixon, right? He's Things been almost as good for him. But there was that Long Beach and the tangling with Pato. And yeah, uh, his weekend, boy, uh, terrible finish last. Look at New Garden, Indy 500 victory, won Texas as well, but also had that terrible weekend of lots of problems and, and misfortune that was out of his hands to open the season at St. Pete, finished 17th. Things weren't great at, at Barber as well, right? Uh, 15th, I think. And boom, right? Uh, Mid-Ohio, not wonderful. I think he was, what, 11th or 12th? Three finishes for Joseph outside the top 10. Two of them 15th or worse, basically finishing in the bottom half of the field, Keith. And he's, he's more than 100 points behind Alex. 
it's crazy how big the lead is that Alex has over his teammate, Scott Dixon, 110 points. Uh, what, 116, I think, over Joseph? Perfection, darn near perfection in terms of no truly bad results, dark clouds, cartoon anvils, you name it, falling on Alex's number 10 car. And that's the reason why he's not like, yep, I got it. You suckers are done for because he knows. Could be a half shaft that breaks uh, on the opening lap at Toronto. Could be someone making a mistake behind him and hitting him and them being the bowling ball and him being the bowling pin that gets stuffed into turn three, smash the nose, and barring a miracle, he's finishing 18th or worse. Uh, Again, we can run through the list. Uh, Him running well last year at the indy gp or whatever and losing a motor like just saying get to iowa and something the drivetrain fails there's an electronics issue none of these things have happened and so that's why we behold what has taken place so far with great reverie but oh lord he knows and we know and his rivals know that it's damn near impossible for him to get through the next eight races without the cartoon anvil striking at least once if not twice and depending <clears throat> on how bad that hit happens to be and what that number is that finishing position for the race right already mentioned marcus erickson that mistake he made on lap one he finished dead last that finishing of dead last i mean he was a ways back on polo uh going into the race I mean, he's now, what, I think like 122 points. He's like two and a half races behind in points. Had he gotten through the first lap without issue and run well and had a, you know, top three, top four, you know, Alex still extends that championship lead, but it's not insane. Right now, it's completely insane. So Dixon has a 27th. I just pulled this up so I can get my numbers correct. Dixon has a worst finish of 27th. Newgarden so far, his worst is 17th. Bad, but not terrible. Erickson has a 27th. In fifth place, Pato Award has a 17th, a 24th, and a 26th. Right? He's 127 points behind Pelot. Um, McLaughlin... He actually doesn't have any truly terrible, but he has enough that are just a little bit wide of the mark. 13th, 10th, 16th, 14th. It's just in there. It really is, Keith. So if Pelot's bad days can be limited to 14th and 13th and that kind of stuff, they're not catching him. So he's on full-time Cartoon Anvil Watch. Uh, everyone else is doing cartoon anvil dances and praying for them to rain on Alex. Otherwise, oh boy, this is, this is going to be over before we get to Laguna Seca. Uh, if, if there are no cartoon anvil interventions, um, get to our last couple of questions and then say farewell for this episode. Just scrolling through here. Uh, I'll just read this one quickly. 
Matthew Featherman, you say, MP, thanks for the mid-Ohio suggestions from last week. My wife Dawn and I love the track. Awesome. You say you'll be going back. Uh, had asked Matthew to send in a little uh, homework to tell us about the experience, especially from his wife, who he mentioned it was her first uh, IndyCar event. Said she really enjoyed uh, the race, was surprised at how interactive most of the drivers were with fans, albeit with a few exceptions. You say, without naming names, they rhyme with uh, Groschon and Rossi. <laughs> well, uh, there you go. Uh, we ended up giving our grandstand seats, uh, giving up our grandstand seats, and just sitting in the S's. What a great view. Uh, and that was the, the place with the main action areas all weekend, including watching Benjamin Peterson fighting off Pillow for many laps. Regardless of popular opinion, it was a great part of the race. Uh, definitely recommend this track to anyone as an event they should attend at least once. We were sad to find out you weren't attending, but you had a great reason. Anyway, my question is, what is the next must-see track we need to attend? We decided we need to get to one per year at a minimum. Well, I just kind of needed to know which ones you've gone to, Matthew, so I can recommend some other ones. But if I had to just go off of, I don't, let's assume you've been to none, um, knowing that, again, this was your first IndyCar race for your wife, at least. So uh, I'm thinking of her in particular. Uh, if you like, if you want to do a trip where you go, we can enjoy a lot of stuff and racing, not just the racing itself. Go to Long Beach. It is a lot of fun. You have IMSA there as well, putting on a great race. There's some other series that are there that are a lot of fun. And obviously, uh, you know, Los Angeles, Hollywood, Long Beach. Um, there's water. There is surf. There is music. There's food. There's all kinds of great stuff. Probably don't have to tell you that it's a somewhat popular destination. And you can find a lot of cool things there that uh, include the racing itself. There isn't much to do in uh, Leeds, Alabama. Um there are some great barbecue places, naturally. How could there not be? But uh, Barber Motorsports Park is truly beautiful, and I think you would enjoy that quite a bit. It's a place where if you are curious, just walking around and looking at all the little tchotchkes and, and weird kind of things that uh, Mr. Barber has included around the place will make for some fun viewing. Indy 500 is a bit of an obvious thing. Go and experience that once in life if you haven't. Road America is the one I tell everyone to go to outside the Indy 500 unicorn event. Uh, Road America is number one on my list, and it will always be unless, I mean, I can't even, how's this? I dream of another IndyCar event road course race being better than Road America. So, but go there. That's phenomenal. Uh, Toronto, for sure. Just, it's an amazing town. Uh, everything that you might enjoy in a, LA, San Francisco, New York, major metropolitan area, but like way cleaner and more polite. Uh, go do that for sure. After that, uh, Gateway, certainly. Uh, pretty good turnout there in terms of fans, so you'll feel like you're around a lot of folks that you enjoy. I haven't been to the Nashville street race, been to Nashville for old school IRL races, but uh, I hope and I'm currently planning to be there this year. I have no conflicts with other events I normally need to cover, so I hope to report back on that. But Gateway for sure, uh, I think you would enjoy yourself. There are some cool, fun things around there to enjoy too. I love Portland, always have. I know that 
we don't really do politics on the show, nor am I going to get into it now, but depending on if you watch a lot of cable news and whatnot and let that stuff uh, indoctrinate you, there's some folks who will tell you that Portland, Oregon is truly just hell on earth. And having gone there for 30 plus years, 40 years, almost 40 years of my life, um, and going there still, I love the place. It feels comfortable. Um, and yeah, so, uh, you might go there. Uh, the circuit's really cool in a park. Um, and the people that I come across there tend to be some of the friendliest. Uh, so that's one I might consider. I realize I'm naming essentially every track, but Hey, you asked, uh, my home race, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca also falls into that long beach type category of you know, Monterey Peninsula, about as beautiful places you're going to find. Food's amazing. Water and view is amazing. The aquarium's really cool. If you love golf, uh, you will never want to leave. Um, it's a little bit remote from, from the rest of California. You drive about 90 minutes north and you're in uh, South Bay, Silicon Valley, San Jose, and whatnot. If you go to the east side where my wife and I live, of San Jose, Oakland, Berkeley, all that kind of stuff, Hayward, you go west along the peninsula where I was born and raised. You get Palo Alto, Redwood City, San Mateo, uh, birthplace of myself, uh, Tom Brady, Dennis Haysbert, um, Greg, I, I apologize. I am forgetting his name, but I read something last week that uh, he he has the most popular uh, late night TV show that being on Fox. So I'm looking this up. Uh, so I get Greg Gutfeld uh, read that he is from San Mateo as well. Um, so yeah, uh, South San Francisco, Millbrae, Burlingame, um, and San Francisco itself. So uh, there's a lot of amazing stuff up there too. So some of these events, maybe Portland, Gateway, Road America, Barber, might be a little bit more of a you're there for the race and you might keep it a shorter trip. The Long Beaches and what else? Toronto's and probably Laguna Seca might be one where you go out a couple days early or stay a couple days late just to enjoy everything else. But uh, hopefully I uh, gave you some great ideas and to the tracks that I didn't mention, it's not that I don't love you, but uh, y'all would be kind of my second tier recommendations. Uh, where else do we go here before we say farewell? Jordan Darwin, appreciate the fact that you're rarely asking softballs here. Interested in the setup philosophy of the more successful multi-car teams? Car must be run different setups in order to have a variety of data. And I wonder whether they all unload with the same optimal setup from the simulations then have each car chase different directions to see what works best. Maybe they all unload with completely different ideas and tweak on them until they find the best. Or perhaps there's another strategy that works best. Could you see it varying by team? 100% different from team to team, but we're overlooking the main item that would drive the the answers here jordan and that is there's no such thing as an optimal setup to apply to a car meaning we take 
Team Penske. What Joseph Newgarden needs from his car, the way he needs it to perform and behave, is different from what Will Power needs with his car. So while every team works on simulation, trying to find optimal setups, those tend to be, I shouldn't say tend to be, those are setups and iterations developed off of a driver's particular wants and needs. So let's go to a Chip Ganassi racing, for example. If you look at how Alex Pelot makes speed at St. Petersburg and how Scott Dixon makes speed at St. Petersburg, they are different things. Just watch the in-car footage. Watch the TV cameras around the track from NBC. They will show vehicles at very different angles and or showing different behaviors. Polo is wickedly fast, just as Scott Dixon is wickedly fast. But you almost never see Alex Polo turning into a slide because you almost never see the car sliding. That's not him. His version of pole position, it's not ragged or untidy. I'm not saying Dixon's pole laps are ragged or untidy, but Dixon, as he's told us for two or three decades now, he doesn't like a car, Jordan, that is oversteery, right? He's not just waiting for big old fishtailing drifting. That's not it. What he needs is for the front of the car to be super positive. I'm exaggerating, but just barely touch the steering wheel and boom, it shoots left, shoots right, goes where he wants. And if in making that happen first, the back of the car, the part that's trailing along afterwards, happens to slide a little bit, He's totally comfortable catching that, keeping his foot in it, and maintaining that speed. But he doesn't show up at a corner saying, oh, I need this thing just rocked sideways and smoke pouring off the rear tires. It's just, no, make the front just shoot like a bullet into the corner, and I have the hand speed and skills to clean up any little back end darting out a little bit. And right, That's how he makes his speed. Alex Pelot obviously wants the car to turn well, but he doesn't need it to shoot like a rocket in the same way that Dixon does. So as a result, you don't see the back of the car moving around very much. So just sharing what we get to see and what you can observe. And so as a result, what Dixon would probably want for an optimal setup, something that would get derived through driver in the loop simulation or just non-driver in the loop, just what we call sim, would likely be a little bit different than Polo. And so in terms of trying things, might be something a little bit different. Might be something that the team believes they've found in damping, a different build configuration of damping. That could be something that helps the team across the board. So... Dixon likes the car to do something in a certain way. His side might 
take that damper development that they have and make some adjustments to it that speak to Dixon's needs. Pelot's team would likely take the very same dampers and make some very quick clickety-click adjustments to it to have it deliver the kind of handling that he needs, and they would go in that direction. The best scenario in a multi-car team to close on this Jordan is when you have more than one driver who likes the same thing or something close to the same thing. Where things get very difficult is when you have drivers who are polar opposite. That's where development either lags behind the others or stalls altogether because you have a team that if we're talking a three-car team, well, are you having to do three completely independent forms of sim and R&D to give those three drivers the very different things they need? Or do you have a Ericsson and Dixon who probably drive more similar than dissimilar? And if Marcus likes something, well, it could very well be something that Scott likes. Well, guess what? We've just streamlined our sim, streamlined our R&D approach, knowing that there's a little bit of matchy-matchiness going on here. So, interesting question. Appreciate you asking it, but the, the real driver behind all of these things are really the drivers. And if McLaughlin at Penske has a particular driving need that is just outside the scope of what his teammates like, it's hard to take one base thing and ask the three to go try it because you know for sure uh, there's one or more who probably won't succeed with it from the outset and you're effectively killing your competitive capabilities from the very first session. Um, Champ Car Forever asks, uh, resubmission. Hey, Marshall, last year the Chip Ganassi team limited the data from sessions and races that Alex Pelot could see or take with him. So is this band still in effect since he is signed to Aaron McLaren for next year, even though he's winning and finishing high at Ganassi? Well, the rumor is that he's signed there, but I don't think legally he could do so or uh, confirm such a thing. But, um, I haven't heard that there's the same exact uh, level of information restriction. It would be hard for Alex and his race engineer, Julian Robertson, and everybody involved to be getting as much out of themselves as they are if the same clampdown was done. Have I heard rumor that, you know, is every single level of parts and pieces or information like the upper tier like hey <laughs> you know uh, this is a brand new idea we had or a brand new thing we made or this is some really you know nsa level uh, encrypted uh, information that might be part of why we're so successful are all those super level tier things being made available i don't know it's not something i ask or would be told, which is why I don't bother asking. Uh, but in terms of things I've heard rumor of, I've heard rumor that there still might be, a, you know, one tier 
that's uh, not being made available because um, how's this? Can't tell you if he has signed for Aaron McLaren. I can tell you one thing he for sure has not done, and that is sign to stay with Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, at BZAD, uh, Ryan Hunter Ray finishing one position ahead of Connor Daly. Daly had to come from the back. Was that a bit of redemption for Connor Daly? Um, I got to believe so. I don't know if redemption's the word. Uh, the kid's good. He's always been good. The team he's been on since he arrived there full-time, right? He was there part-time before, but since he's been there full-time, team's been a bit of a... a oh, boy. No, I won't use that word. That's not a nice word. They've been the opposite of great. Um, they've had some flashes, of course. Teammate Renus VK, former teammate Renus VK, has put in some uh, some good results since... Connor arrived there full-time, but again, for the most part, uh, the team's been stuck in the wilderness. And between the two, right, if we take a look at championship from 2022, uh, again, not crazy separation, right? It's not like Renus finished the year in, you know, ninth in the championship and connor was way the heck down behind him in 18th um you know there were some points for sure earlier in the year for sure uh where connor was you know giving renus a, a pretty good run for his money in the final reckoning um renus i think was 12th which is pretty darn good right uh let me just pull this up to confirm yeah renus was 12th you look at his top finishes, right? There was a uh, a pole in there too at Barber, but uh, sixth. He had a third. He had a fourth. Had another fourth. Had another sixth. Uh, ended up being between Graham Rahal and Romain Grosjean. Third, twelfth uh, in the championship. Connor, seventeenth. So again, not terrible by any means. Behind rookie David Malukas at Coin, which. You know, that, that does stand, did stand out as like a, huh, okay. We know that certainly all the poor results were not Connor's fault. In terms of top results, he had a fifth and a sixth to follow that up. That was it. So having to appraise between the two, if we had to cut bait with one, um, and look at how things were going this year, which for Renus in particular, we're not amazing, but between he and Connor, Connor just seemed to be stuck in the worst full season run of his career. And so having to choose between the two, you can see, or you can understand maybe why Carpenter chose to go with Renus. So, ran through that again to drive home the point that this had not been a great experience for Connor there. I think he arrived at Carpenter with folks expecting things to be good for him. They by and large were not. And instead of improving second year there, things actually ended up going farther away from good and once again we can say similar things for renus who 
Obviously, he can have some better results here and improve his place in the championship, but he finished 12th last year. He's currently 16th. Um, So I think about that. I think about of the two, Renus with that victory, also Renus with far less experience in IndyCar, a driver who is judged softer, easier, than Connor, who's been around for a long time, even though he hasn't exactly done a crazy amount more of IndyCar racing than Renus. So I just factor all that stuff in and go, yeah. Uh, I think for those who forgot that he can drive, which he mentioned, like, hey, I haven't forgotten how to drive, I think it helped. If there's one concern, it's I don't know how many team owners truly paid attention during the race or went back and watched after the race and gave much consideration to how Connor starting dead last, firing up to 20th, being eight-tenths of a second behind the guy driving his former car and passing the guy who'd done the whole weekend and the whole season, his new teammate, temporary teammate, Elio Castroneves happened to do in the sister car. Those are all things... I think should impress people. I just don't know how many people who aren't Connor Daly fans or who don't have a reason, wouldn't have had a reason to really look and pay attention might have noticed. So I think it can only help. I would hope that for some who aren't sure if he should be considered for anything, maybe took a bit of a notice and if he wasn't on their short list before maybe he will be now um we know that he is phenomenal at the indy 500 more often than not and i'm not saying that every finish he's had at indy has been phenomenal but uh we know that guy can deliver in a really good car so at minimum i'd hope folks are saying hey um indy 500 let's go make some money and and do big things but i'd also hope that assuming he's able to get to the rest of the races provided he doesn't have any other racing conflicts or otherwise um right place right time to help Meyershank racing if simon's able to go again he'll be in the car for toronto if not mike shank told me you know they're running through their list of options um would it be an opportunity to put somebody in the car that they're considering for next year um possibly so i don't know if that means connor would get a invite back for toronto uh if there is a need but he'd be wise to show up at the rest of the races have his seat be able to drive and as he's had to done had to done sure had to do too many times previously in his career show up be a pest but let the visual statement of him being there without a ride carry weight say things without having to say them i'm here i want to be here i'm showing up i'm on my own dime i am making sure you know i'm a resource for you I don't want to be your driver because I'm hoping your driver gets hurt. I do know, though, that this happens, and I want to be here. And while you will see some other drivers show up 
usually especially towards the last couple of races as they're trying to see jog people's memory that they still exist so we head towards the off season being the guy to show up at every race and be persistent he's done it before it's worked before um i hope he can do it again and use mid ohio as a bit of a springboard and reminder all right why don't we pick one or two more here to then we will say goodbye um Tim Lindsay, you ask why Indy NXT uses the Halo and IndyCar uses the Aero Screen. Uh, you ask why does why doesn't NXT come to Toronto anymore? Um, ask if I'll be there. I wish I could, but I won't. Unfortunately, travel budget does not allow. Um, believe getting the budgets down as well as the reason why IndyCar took that off the uh, the the list for NXT too. Um, the NXT cars have never had a aero screen developed for them, but uh, Halo is something that was pretty easy to incorporate. There's no real money that I can think of being spent by Penske Entertainment, which owns Indie NXT, to do standalone development of uh, that laminate screen uh, and to turn that into a junior open wheel version of IndyCar's aero screen. So, um, that's what they got. Now, granted, if and when Penske Entertainment commissions a new uh, NXT, Indy Lights, whatever you want to call it, uh, car, would that be part of the tender? I would think so. But uh, yeah, that's the reason why. A lot more money available up in IndyCar. Also, keep in mind that was being spent uh, before Penske Entertainment bought the series. So uh, the Holman George family and the money uh, used to develop that, get it ready for the 2020 season. Uh, happened to coincide right with uh, the timing of Penske Entertainment's purchase of IndyCar, but all that development and the money spent for it was done in advance of Penske Entertainment. So um, this is something that having bought a series that had aero screens uh, and also what came along with it with uh, Indy NXT, uh, there was the effort and initiative by Penske Entertainment to work with Anderson Promotions, the former promoter of the series, um, to make that happen, which is awesome. Um, Halos are there, but yeah, next opportunity for them is to go to an aero screen. I hope they do. Our pal Ryan Terpstra from the Day, who got a great shout-out from newest member David Malukas, says, I know it isn't any car, but can we take a moment to appreciate what Shane Van Gisbergen did in Chicago on Sunday I have no idea how he'd do in an IndyCar, but my goodness, is he talented? Uh, and you say, and Scott McLaughlin had his number the last couple of years. They went head to head in the Supercar Series. You say, I miss that rivalry. Yeah, Shane's good. <laughs> I met him for the first time in 2020. No, 2020, good Lord. 2010, when I went down and I think I covered five or six. Uh, V8 supercar races between 2010 and 2012, something like that. Flew down there a bunch, uh, or at least what was a bunch for me, and got to meet him almost right away and was so impressed by him. Sweet kid, just dumb amounts of talent. And yeah, uh, rally driving, drifting, uh, supercars, now NASCAR Cup race winner. Um, I don't know if I would put his peak talent in the same place as McLaughlin's, but you know, if we're rating them and saying McLaughlin is at 100.0%, yeah, 
I mean, if Shane's not at 99.8 and a half, like, you know, I think Scotty's better. If I had to pick between the two, I'd take Scott. But we're talking about the slightest, most meaningless separation between the two. So, uh, slightly bigger frame on Shane. So, I would imagine he would fit, right? He's more Graham Rahal size than uh, than not. But if he were to fit in any car, had an interest, um, like a real interest in going through the wars and learning everything with a, a quality team, I mean, I see no reason why we wouldn't have a similar story of the guy becoming a front runner in the series within two to three years. Uh, let's see. Mitt. Suki Matsura, hey, been a little while, asking uh, realistic landing places for David Malukas since he is leaving Dale Coin Racing. Um, it's funny who I speak to on a daily basis. I have some say, oh, it's it's Ganassi for sure. I have others say it's Andretti for sure. I have more people saying it's Andretti. Um, that's why I mentioned Andretti, among others. I think I wrote among others in that story. Um I think Carpenter, I think Shank, I mean, <laughs> I think Ray Hall. I think there's kind of the same players. I haven't heard his name mentioned uh, as an option at uh, Errol McLaren, and I don't say that in a critical way towards David. I just haven't heard it. But, I mean, the same kind of players we hear about, um, you know, those are all potential landing spots for him. Uh, I didn't include this in what I wrote just because it didn't really matter too much. Um Davey told me he was leaving, was it March? Yeah. Uh, he and I were talking about this, and uh, next year, knowing that he was in a two-year contract, this is the second of the two, and uh, I think he mentioned to me it might have been St. Pete, Texas, something like that, March-ish. He, yeah, uh, but asked for that to be kept uh, top secret. And I was doing a silly season update and, you know, he, uh, I don't remember exactly how the interactions went, but, uh, yeah, basically came back with saying, if you could just kind of mention I could stay, I could go, uh, who knows my dad starts a team. I could go there. There's, you know, a whole bunch of options in front of me, but you know, um, let's hold off on, on saying that I'm leaving. Um, uh, those are the kinds of things I go. Yeah, man, not a problem. So glad that he's finally, uh, saying this publicly. Um, also said some very kind things about Dale coin racing and, uh, what a great place they are for a young driver to learn and develop. So Malukas is the, the, will be the, the most recent of many young drivers to get their start there. And I'm sure that there will be more headed, uh, to Dale's team. Last item here, Ted Wallishan, Wallishan, apologize if I'm not exactly getting your last name correct. So what's happening to Elio this year? We're just seeing uh, a driver who decided that they want to keep racing for as long as possible, even while is he, quote, past his prime? Yeah, he is. That's not a mean statement. Um, Like many, love the guy. Uh, His finest days. The ability to extract race-winning speed out of a car. The ability to be blisteringly fast 
with the consistency needed to get top finishes, those are some of the things that get lost with time. And it's not so much the physical age and his muscles no longer are as fast as they once were. It's just the hunger to obliterate the throttle pedal, brake pedal, steering wheel, flappy pedals to change the gears and tire and just that I must destroy and kill every nanosecond of every lap that fuels a Pato Award, award Colton Herta, even though he's the sweetest guy ever, uh, Alex Pillow and heck, even the Scott Dixons and Colt run down the list, right? The ability to summon that level of sustained, flawless ferocity, it fades. And he's super hungry and super passionate, and right, that's not going to change. The style of racing that he's in, though, is merciless when it comes to, yep, you're either at 100% attack at all times, never relent and basically never make a mistake or your 12th, 15th, 20th, 24th. So you've got that. And then you also have the Meyer shank racing team figuring out, finding out that we are not everything we thought we were yet. We have to make some significant changes in how we do things, improve ourselves, get more people, more gooder people we need to stack more talent on top of talent that we already have um as a combination um there's a reason why at least here in indycar like we've had champions who are in their 40s before but i'm struggling to think of the last time we had a 48 year old champion uh, and we had mario pushing till he was what 53 54 and won in the last year or two of his full-time career, but even he'll tell you, like, my passion for driving has never waned. My ability to get up and attack just unrelentingly like I did when I was 20 or 30 or, hell, even 40, that gets harder with time. Stack that with a team that is just subpar this year and you get an elio castroneves who is really having a uh, a terrible close to his full-time career so there you go that is our show a little bit longer than anticipated but every now and then we have those and thank you for all the questions you sent in thank you to our pal jerry siddeth for putting them together um i strongly strongly recommend that if you happen to be on YouTube anytime soon or wherever you might consume your social media, please take my wife's recommendation and uh, consume a lot of the Hambone and Roy show, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. the Milk Bros. Uh, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Discount Tire. I'll speak to you very soon.